Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. Hello, I am so very excited to have an extraordinary guest, the author of Bear Boy. This book is launching. Jane Goodall wrote the intro, the forward to it. It is basically a template for effective animal activism, but it's also a personal story. Justin Barker, you're up in San Francisco. Tell us what happened a quarter of a century ago that changed your life and involved two bears who were in very bad shape. Honestly, you know, I was, I was, uh, I had a rough childhood, you know, I I have to be honest, I was a like middle-class white kid, but I got bullied a lot um, as a, as a young, as a young kid. And, you know, I was, uh, I was queer and struggling with my identity and uh, essentially one day the summer was starting, God, uh, some 25 years ago. And my dad said, what are you going to do? You're not going to watch TV um, uh, all summer long. And we went to a used bookstore and I found a book from Ingrid Newquirk, 101 things kids could do to save the animals and literally grabbed that off the shelf. I opened to the chapter about meat and about factory farmings, farming. And I realized in that moment that I had been eating animals and literally in that moment, in that bookstore, I went vegetarian, been vegetarian ever since, and then took that book home, started flipping through and found a, the chapter about captive animals and about the tragedies, the tragedy of captivity and, and zoos and how animals are impacted. And that just really pulled at my heartstrings. Uh, and so I started an animal rights group when I was 13 called Citizens Lobbying for Animals and Zoos. And, you know, that started getting some momentum. I was taking on the Sacramento Zoo. And then eventually I got a letter from a woman who said, there's these two bears, Brutus and Ursula, living in the worst conditions. These two bears were living in a cage not much bigger than a ship container on the edge of a creek that flooded every few years and they it was horrible these they these bears had worn a a very deep uh, path in the concrete that they had paced in for 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 the 18 years when I discovered them and the second I met Brutus and Ursula that became my obsession I decided hey we need to improve the conditions here and then eventually I realized that the city just really didn't care about these bears they were living in this place called Roseville California and uh, essentially I decided we got to get them out of here so that turned into a three-year campaign to First, get the bears to get the city to agree to release the bears to find a sanctuary to take them, and then it was going to cost a quarter million dollars to actually um, get their new home built, um, and that's what uh, well, that's what Bear Boy um, entails. So n- not only that journey, but also kind of my personal journey. The story had been covered quite a bit in the media, so people knew know about this story, but they've actually never heard. Uh, what really went down and well, the personal struggles I faced. It's a fascinating story. I have not read the entire thing, but I was leafing through it. You're a great writer. And you. you also sent me 
uh, the the story, the news story from San Francisco that was done by the same reporter who was the first reporter to cover you a quarter of a century ago. And she shows the footage of you as this little teenager fighting for the bears. And it was actually um, her reporting that started the fundraising campaign that you, you as a teenager started uh, raising how much money? Um, it's absolutely incredible because I think that this will really help people who, who have um, desire to help animals who see these same horrific conditions with roadside zoos, with other zoos. It's not just roadside zoos, people. Uh, zoos are prisons for animals, okay? That's what they are. They're, they're prisons and they don't teach kids anything except the wrong message of uh, humans' role is to grab animals from the wild, dominate them and stick them in jail. So uh, tell us about that, how the story took off, how you as a, a teenager with literally very little power, except the power of your imagination and the power of your determination managed to raise a whole lot of money and get major news media involved. You know, it started, you know, my work really started at the Sacramento Zoo. So, you know, the, uh, I just started showing up every single day to the Sacramento Zoo. And I was like, I'm going to investigate. I, you know, I'm going to find out what's happening here. And literally every day I would show up I'd observe the animals there. I'd see how, it, you know, how the public interacts with animals in zoos, which is not good. There's a lot of mocking going on and, and a lot of pointing, not a lot of learning going on. And, uh, and then I found two zookeepers who told, started telling me all the inner workings, what was actually going down. And essentially uh, that, um, you know, led to um, led to a front. You know, the the Sacramento Zoo got their accreditation tabled, and then there was a front page article in the Sacramento Bee um, about the animal neglect that was going on from the work I was doing, and so I was really impressed with like how the media was able to. Um, to bring to light what happened at the Sacramento at the Sacramento Zoo, um, and then I really once I started you know working on the bear campaign to free them, I realized how powerful the media was, and and started leveraging the media because oftentimes these uh, you know these the the folks who were keeping the Brutus and Ursula had no interest in talking to a thirteen year old kid was did not take me seriously, and only until the story started landing on the local news on the front page <laughs> of the newspaper was when they were like started paying attention and so that's I really used the media um, to and you know honestly I was a thirteen year old loudmouth kid, so there was something compelling about two bears in a terrible condition and this loud mouth kid. And so I was really able to, to develop a narrative that the local media gobbled up. And then eventually the national media jumped onto the story and uh, kind of the rest is history. I think you were in People Magazine, which is incredible. We've got a caller, Donnie. Uh, your question or thought for Justin Barker, the author of The Incredible Bear Boy, a book just <laughs> launched, forward by Jane Goodall. Uh, hi, Justin. Uh, here's my question. How did you get the municipality to agree? I mean, money aside, get them to agree to relocate Ursula and Brutus to a sanctuary. Yeah, well, you know, originally the, the mayor, who I happened to get his home phone number, 
And um, I would just call him at home and he would, wouldn't really take me seriously. Uh, and eventually, because the news started actually covering the story, uh, he did start taking me seriously. So he literally told me those bears were going to die in that cage. That was what the mayor told me at the time. And that was my rallying call to prove him wrong. And essentially, um, because you know, all of the negative media that started coming in and the calls they started getting, they're like, okay, if you can find a home for these bears, we will agree to let them go. Um, so it was really about like leveraging uh, the the media to, to, ins- like, to shine a light on the problem. Um, and only then was I able to, you know, get get them to agree and, and, you know, find, eventually find a sanctuary called Folsom Zoo Sanctuary to, to actually agree to take the bears. Uh, and the banality of evil, as they say, here's this mayor just treating you with contempt, but underestimating you. Did his contempt for you and his dismissal of you anger you and empower you to say, I'm going to show him? I mean, I literally like to say that, like, the no's that I heard as a young person, that no, these bears will are not going to, you know, leave this cage. No, we can't do this. I liked to eat no's for breakfast. I literally had to eat no's for breakfast, and that powered me. Like, as a young person, I wanted to not just free Brutus and Ursula, but I wanted to prove all these adults who didn't believe that I could ever do anything to, to impact these bears. I wanted to prove them wrong. So, indeed, like, we have to eat up all the no's to, to land the yeses. And that's really, uh, that's part of this story. It was just powering it. through. I love that. Eat up the nose. I'm going to remember that when I get some nose. we got another caller on hold. Sarah, your question or thought for Justin Barker, the author of Bear Boy. You can buy it at bearboy.com, right? Dot .org. Bearboy.org. Oh, Bearboy.org. And it's real simple. I was on the website last night. This book, forward by Jane Goodall, and got incredible reviews. Sarah, your question. Oh, hey, I'm so happy to talk to you, Justin. Thank you for going to the Sacramento Zoo and, and doing what you did. It takes a lot of... Ask your and question because you're breaking it, up. Literally, we had a, uh, a season pass or whatever you want to call it, a membership. And I believe that they draw kids in by the activities that they do there. Like they had a train you can ride around, but we never saw the animals were alone. We never made that connection when we were younger. And then, of course, I did when I was older. But how do you, how do you get? It's, I really feel like it's the parents that have to get the education because they're the ones that are driving them to the zoo and taking them, and they're the ones that are like believing in all of the stuff. I guess it's just like a, I don't know how to how to fix it, but I definitely think it's something that maybe your book tells. But what is your current, you know? on that with kids like getting into the schools or how, how are you doing that now excellent question sarah take it away yeah i mean for me i'm a dad now i have a two-year-old son and i'll tell you that um i will never take my son to the zoo uh that is not a place that that i think is appropriate for kids because i think it sends an incredibly wrong message about like the natural world um, and there's so many ways to learn about animals in their natural environment 
Um, so I would say, first off, I think it's important to really rethink. It's, you know, I, I even have vegan friends who take their friends to the zoo or to their kids to the zoo. And, um, and I really think it's important to start rethinking where are we sharing. The botanical garden is a great place. Let's go learn about plants. Um, but I, until zoos dramatically change what they are doing and how they are approaching um, their care of animals, like, it's time to start closing them down, in my opinion. Um, there's some zoos that are actually like participating in conservation, very few. Um, and, and so I would say I would really encourage people not to take their kids to the zoo. Um, and, uh, and I think that there's so many other ways that there's amazing stories to, 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 be, to be shared around compassion. And that's what I really want to teach my kids is about, you know, my son is, is um, compassion for animals. And, um, and so that's like, you know, and stories is, is a way to do that. I've been collecting these amazing books that not only talk about, um, you know, going vegetarian, but also just about like how to be compassionate to our, our fellow, um, our fellow earthlings. Um, let me say this. Uh, I agree with you. Zoos have to go. Um, and I think that there's a way to transition some of them into sanctuaries. Now, the way it was explained to me uh, by an expert is the difference between a zoo and a sanctuary is zoos are designed for people. Sanctuaries are designed for animals. It doesn't matter how much space the zoo has. They are really encouraged and pressured. And their whole model is to keep animals in tiny spaces. Why? Otherwise, the animals would walk away and go to the farthest end away from humans because nobody likes to be put on display, including animals. So they uh, keep them in small spaces because it's a, a display case, essentially, a glorified display case. And uh, I feel that we need to completely transition these zoos. I'm not saying everybody who runs a zoo or is involved with a zoo has bad intentions, but their time has come and gone like Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, which when I started Jane Unchained, um, the, one of the very first stories I did was a protest against Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus at, outside the Staples Center in Brooklyn. And I said to myself, it was nine degrees. Uh, nobody seemed to be paying attention to the 200 protesters. Is this worth it? I said, yes, it's worth it. It's worth it. Let's do it. Guess what? Not because of me, because of PETA primarily, but Ringling Brothers is gone in the dustbin of history. I think we need to really start a movement to transition these zoos into sanctuaries or shut them down. Uh, we've got another caller, Kimberly, your question or thought for Justin Barker, the author of Bear Boy. You can go to bearboy.org and get this incredible book. Really great read. I'm in the middle of it. I'm having so much fun. It's really well written. Go ahead, Kim. Hi. Yes, thank you. I look forward to getting the book. I was wondering... Justin, you were so brave and conscientious when you were young, and I wonder how your friends, did your friends join in? Did they think you were crazy? Were, you know, did they understand what was going on, your young friends? You know, my young friends thought it was cool that I was on TV. That's the, the extent of it. You know, like when I go, the, I talk about this in the book a little bit, but I, uh, you know, everyone's like, whoa, 
Bear Boys on TV again or on the front page of the, the newspaper. So so people were into that. Um, but I'll, I tell a story of um, in the book, actually, about um, inviting all my friends over for, uh, for um, uh, a film night at my house. And um, what I was actually playing was a VHS of, uh, of PETA uh, undercover footage at a slaughterhouse. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. So I've that tried, was my... I've yeah. tried tricks like that, too. We've got <laughs> another caller, Rebecca, your question or thought for Justin Barker, author of the incredible book, Bear Boy, just hitting uh, the market today. You can get your book at bearboy.org. Rebecca? Oh, yes. Thank you so much. <clears throat> thank you so much, Justin, for what you've done. I wonder if you could tell us what your first steps were or what your first steps would be for us. I don't go to the zoos. Occasionally, I'll hear of somebody who, who went to a zoo. Do you have some recommendations for us? Thank you so much. You know, every single zoo in this country needs citizens who are actually uh, holding it accountable. You know, I've spent the last year, I live here in San Francisco, and I spent, you know, for 10 years, I, I've been trying to transition the San Francisco Zoo starting in 2008 to a rescue zoo, did a lot of work that didn't, that didn't play out, the, the city didn't agree to do that. I've been investigating the zoo. Um, so I, I would say that not just going to the zoo, that that's, you know, let's like not go to the zoo, but we actually need to investigate local zoos. And there's so many mechanisms in place. You can do Freedom of Information Acts to understand what's going on and to be highlighting it. Every zoo in our country um, needs citizens who are actually holding it accountable um, because there's so many dodgy things going on in the zoos across this country. Um, and oftentimes these, these zoos are owned or partly owned um, by the cities, the, the municipalities where you live in. So I would say that is a great step is to start investigating. And, um, and you know, the very first thing I did ever for the Sacramento Zoo years ago was a request a Freedom of Information Act through the USDA. USDA is not, you know, has very, you know, limited, um, you know, requirements for zoos, but at least it gives you a little picture into what's happening. So I would say that is a great step is, um, request all of the documents that, that, that you can from um, your local zoo through the USDA. And uh, the other thing that is a difference between zoos and sanctuaries, aside from the fact that sanctuaries are designed for animals, not to put animals on display for people, is that uh, sanctuaries don't breed animals and they don't trade animals. They may take an animal in because the animal needs to find a home, but they're not doing this trading, bartering, breeding that zoos do. Uh, and, you know, we've heard these scandalous stories. I know there was one in Europe where they're euthanizing their zoo animals. And there was even a, an idea that they were going to feed some of the zoo animals to the other zoo animals after they killed them. I mean, anytime you regard a living being as a commodity, you are going to enter a morally um, bad territory. And this is the problem with zoos. Uh, and just like circuses. So one of the thoughts, and I'd really like to get your thought on this, but you know what? We've got another caller. We've got somebody callers today. So Christina, your question for Justin Barker, author of the incredible book, Bear Boy. Hi. Hi, Justin. Hi, Jane. Um, Yes. I mean, this is just so much needed. 
I'm just literally so happy to see this book out and the story. Mm. So thank you so much, Justin, for doing this and Jane for for educating us about this book. Um, so, Justin, my, my question is, I hope I didn't miss it um, earlier when he, when he spoke. I just joined. Um, tell me, how, um, how did you pick this um, platform, this format for a book? And what was your thought process in terms of any other, um, you know, process to get the message out? Um, just like to hear what you were thinking. <laughs> Be interested. Yeah, that, that's a good question because some would say, well, this is perfect for a documentary. Um, but you decided on a book. Honestly, a book changed my life. A book from PETA changed my life. I found it at a bookstore and it opened my world to the world of animal rights. It and my activism for animals helped me find myself. And I wrote this book because I wanted to pay that forward. It was really important, you know, that, that you know, books land in libraries and use bookstores and all, you know, all over the place. Um, I think obviously there's you know, social media is incredibly effective. Um, but I thought it was important that um, this was in the format where I originally um, kind of discovered my passion for animal rights. So this is like truly an act of, um, of paying forward. You know, I, I, I really wrote this for the next bear boy out there who's struggling in, um, in, in their lives and, and ready to, to take a stand for animal rights. Uh, so and hopefully, you know, I'd love to, like you said, Jane, I would love to make a documentary about the zoo industry. I'm, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. I do documentaries. So, I mean, it, that is certainly next on the list because, um, we're, you know, we're only a documentary away from really exposing the, the horrors of the zoo industry because it's really, really bad and it's gone unchecked for, for far too long. Well, I, I would be happy to support you in that endeavor, and I can't think of a better person than you because you can weave your personal story in. And sometimes people, you know, people that's why you were in People Magazine. That's probably why people read People Magazine. Uh, they're intrigued by human stories as opposed to statistics, however alarming they are. Um, Tell us about your personal story. And I know you used some harsh language that was hurled at you when you were a teenager walking the halls of your school. I don't want to repeat those here, but what was your personal struggle and did that help you connect with the animals and, and look at the animals like, I know what you're going through, identify with this sort of a, a, a good being just being harassed and hurt for really no reason. Mm. Yeah, you know, I I was not your typical kid. I was not your typical boy, you know. Like I started I started um doing ballet when I was 3 years old and the, you know, the kids in the neighborhood really had opinions about why uh, about a 3-year-old kid doing ballet and that was the first time I heard some slurs about, you know, like a 3-year-old being a, you know, I don't even repeat the word here, but um, I often was, um, I think because maybe I was a little effeminate, I was in the closet as a kid, you know, I was, I was, I'm a queer man. And, um, and that was really hard in the suburbs in the nineties. Um, so that um, certainly, I certainly as a young person felt boxed in by the gender norms and expectations of, of boys. Um, and the struggles I faced with my own identity. Um, and I really, that really resonated with me when I learned about the animals. Like, 
I was not locked in a cage, you know, I was maybe locked in a metaphorical cage, but I really resonated with, um, with the story of animals being locked in places they didn't want to be. Uh, and, um, and I, it really felt that, you know, that, that resonated, uh, with, with my own story and I was able to have empathy for them. And I didn't know that at the time, honestly, it took me writing this book to really understand how those both my identity and struggles as a young person intersected with my animal activism in those early days and today. Uh, and so it certainly was interesting in the 10 years it took me to write this book, uncovering those, the, those things um, in myself and in the story was, was kind of cool. Now, uh, who is the publisher or did you self publish? Uh, and if so, I think you could explain how you did that because so many people want to write books and today you don't need a publisher. You can actually um, raise funds for causes by writing a book and, and selling it directly. Tell us about that. Right. Well, you know, I really had a dream of, um, of a traditional publishing deal. That was like was the goal. I thought that like getting a traditional publisher was the right you know, way to kind of build a platform for this book. Um, I went down that route. I got a, I actually got an agent, um, who, who signed me up within, um, within days of signing that contract with the agent, she wanted to completely eliminate the queer part of my story out of this book. Uh, she said that that has to go. This only people only want to hear about the bear story. I went along with it because I thought like, Hey, like, she knows what she's doing. Um, but then as she was pitching to big publishing houses, she's like, oh, we need to really get you in the media. Can you write a um, controversial piece about Greta Thunberg? What? And that is when I said, I'm done. I let her go. I let the agent go. And I, like, to be frank, really begrudgingly decided to indie publish is what I'm calling it because I established a, um, a, an imp, a book imprint um, named after the bears, Brutus and Ursula. So, um, so I named the, the imprint after them and um, I, I brought the book out. I worked with the most amazing people who all work in the traditional publishing industry, the designers, the, you know, the, the editors. So essentially this is like a traditionally published book on my own terms. And, uh, and so I would encourage people to do that. And, you know, part of the deal was why I established this imprint was to create and tell more stories about animal rights for young people. So this is kind of the first book of, I hope, many to, to highlight stories of activism and, and liberation. Are you going to put it on audio? Because I'll be I'll confess to something. I've been walking and listening to books probably more than I've read them lately. <laughs> I want to hit like a threshold that there's a certain number of books that are sold that then I, I will definitely, um, I'll definitely uh, do an audio version of it. I just did like a five minute clip for, um, for the podcast uh, for our hen house podcast. Oh yeah. And that took me like, that, that took me like five hours to get right. So I'm like, I don't, that, this is going to be like quite you a commitment. You can just to... read it. You can read it <laughs> and you've got a great voice. Now let's get back to the bears. So what happened? Give us the, the, I know you want people to read the book, but the book is so fascinating. Even though the bear's got a home, you still need to read the book. Okay. Okay. Um, what happened? How did it happen? And I know they've both passed away since, but what was it like when they found their home, when they were able to go on grass? 
Apparently, they also had a big pool. It was a much larger space. Tell us about that. Yeah, the bears, they built the cage. We, we raised the money. Like, spoiler would you alert, everyone. Call it a cage, or would you call it, like, more it of a... It was still a cage. Let's be real. Let's, let's, but it was, a, it was, you know, it was a huge, I think it was 10 times the size of the cage they had spent, you know, um, their whole lives in. But it was there was dirt and 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 um, and grass. grass and like a heated pool with a waterfall and most importantly the most amazing caretakers you know Folsom Zoo Sanctuary only rescues animals that need help so they're um, they're a special place um, but Brutus and Ursula had really bad health conditions actually they had spent their entire lives neglected they never they only had somebody who would spray down their hose and dump monkey food in their cage for their whole lives so they never had proper care um and ursula was like ended up having problems with her hip this bear let acupuncturists in let she got like a, a weekly massage like she had these humans that were like really helping her at the end of her life. So it was life. This place was literally their retirement. And they got, they were treated like royalty. While they were still in captivity, they were like treated with royalty. And, you know, um, one of their, interestingly, this, one of the zookeepers at the Sacramento Zoo who told me all the information became Ursula's main caretaker at the Folsom Zoo. Um, and she she she's passed on now but she one of her quotes and i have it in the book was that that um ursula was really like proved that like the human animal bond is real and like how gentle she was was such a testament um to allowing people to like rotate her body and give her acupuncture and give her massage um was such a testament to like how gentle um, bears are and how sensitive animals are. Um, so that was part of the story was, you know, they passed on. Um, but the fact that Brutus and Ursula both had obituaries bigger than most humans, um, to me was a huge, like, whoa, moment. Uh, I was sad to see them go. How many years did they live in the new enclosure? They had about four years in the new enclosure. And what was the moment, like, quite often when we cover like Beagle Freedom Project where they rescue uh, beagles and other animals from laboratories and they open the cage and that first moment when they come out is so emotional. People, when you watch those videos of them coming out and then they suddenly realize, I can move around. It's just, if you don't cry, there's see a therapist because <laughs> I get emotional just thinking about it. What was that, what was that moment like for Ursula and Brutus? I mean, it was amazing. Brutus and Ursula would both dive into their water. They had lived in something in a tiny little tank. There was a little tiny tank of water for them they could hardly fit in. So they were like, they would dive into the water. They had like fresh fish they would chase and they would just lounge in the dirt. Like it was really amazing after like a lifetime on concrete to see how excited they were and how just while they were still in captivity, like the like what a difference hot water and f chasing fresh fish can can do for your life um getting back to the overall problem of zoos this is just a thought that i've had because i do uh interact with a lot of sanctuaries 
And sanctuaries do need to become more self-sustaining because let's say 20, 30 years ago, there were just a handful. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't even, literally the, the ones that I know that are like sort of the, the initial ones, obviously farm sanctuary, animal place, Woodstock farm sanctuary, but there weren't many of them. And now there are hundreds and that's great. But because there are hundreds, um, they, they have to sort of come up with models. And now this is something that I haven't really thought through. So don't hold it against me, but could we replace zoos with sanctuaries? So that kids, instead of going to zoos to be entertained, taking, being taken to zoos by their parents, are taken instead to sanctuaries, they get to have that experience of interacting with the animals, but it's done in a way that is respectful to the animals and is primarily concerned with the benefit for the animals, not for putting animals on display. And of course, I've visited many sanctuaries the irony is that you have a much better experience because you're not seeing an imprisoned animal. You're seeing an animal who's running and jumping and uh, perhaps uh, lounging at the other end, but it, it doesn't matter. The experience is much more powerful and profound and teaches the right message. I mean, the ultimate example is that sanctuaries all across the country have thanks living ceremonies where instead of eating turkeys, people go and, the, and they feed the turkeys cranberries and little pies that turkeys like. And it's one of the greatest experiences you will ever have to see these animals who are tortured and killed by the billions having a great time and actually enjoying a party. And until you're there, you don't really appreciate the extent to which these animals have social lives and can actually enjoy a party. I would testify in a court of law that I was with these turkeys and the humans started laughing and they began laughing with us, making the cackles and really interacting with us like we were all at some kind of cocktail party. It was, it's unbelievable until you experience it. Meaning these animals are complex social beings that are not just commodities to be tortured and chopped up and put on a plate because somebody declared that a tradition, which is not really that old a tradition. Um, take, take, take that away. It's a lot to unpack, I realize. You know, we just fundamentally need to rethink um, so many things, but in particular, I'm passionate about captivity and, and helping animals in zoos. Um, I'm a vegan. Uh, so I, that's like baseline to me is like, hey, let's, you know, that, that, that has to be like part of this, this movement. Um, but, you know, really the, 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 the idea needs to change, you know, the very like thinking behind these zoos need to change. Um, and, and I do, I think that like zoos, eventually I think zoos will go away in, in, in the long term, like that, that they're, that it's, it's something that just like Ringling Brothers, you said, like zoos will not have their place in our society. Um, but until we hit that point, like we need to start transitioning to, um, to rescue zoos, uh, where like the, the, these animals will spend a lifetime here. Like you pointed at um, earlier uh, on the, in the show, um, zoos breed animals. The, the media shows up to show these cute little babies and then the story never continues that 
these animals are separated from their families, sent to other zoos, traded like a like a commodity. Um, and the idea that captivity uh, that we're breeding these uh, we're keeping animals alive um, in in captive situations is conservation is is ridiculous. Uh, so so there's that. We really need to rethink the captivity and and what every zoo in the in the country looks like in the world looks like. But also we have to address that we are losing um, habitat. You know that that animals. Um, don't have a place is it, you know, in the natural world. So how do we transition not only, like how do we actually like start beaming, you know, if you go to these rescue zoos, how are we like protecting lands uh, where animals can live and beaming from like live from these, these, you know, wild sanctuaries so that people can see animals in the wild. There's, I think there's a way to really be creative about technology and really rethink what, a zoo actually looks like and how it's actually directly contributing to conservation and the protection of species around the world. And when we talk about zoos, we also need to include aquariums. Obviously, um, the uh, um, documentary Blackfish blew the lid off of aquariums and there were many, many protests against aquariums. Uh, there was a controversial proposal to build an aquarium, a large aquarium at the Santa Monica Pier. I don't know where that's at. Maybe you can do a Freedom of Information Act request and find out about that because I think a lot of these things fly under the radar and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, you're hit with them when the plans are already made. Um, but uh, uh, there are proposals to take, for example, the whales and put them in a protected sanctuary bays where they're in a cove, but they've been moved from uh, a, a basically what amounts to living in a bathtub their entire lives. Uh, that would be the uh, a human equivalent, having to live in a bathtub your entire life. And they're moved into a cove that's a protected cove because you can't just take I don't believe an animal and just take them from being in a bathtub and throw them in the ocean and say, here, go, go have a good time. So do you know anything about that? I mean, I think that SeaWorld needs to be shut down. And I believe that every whale that's in captivity right now needs to be released to a, a sea sanctuary. And that need that, that like, that is critical. And I also believe that every elephant that's in a zoo right now should be released to an elephant sanctuary. Like none of these facilities are appropriate for these big mammals, for most animals, but in particular elephants and whales travel massive distances. And to contain them the way they've been contained is absolutely obscene. And luckily we're seeing that blackfish, like you said, has like blown the lid off of it. And like, but it has to end. Like what SeaWorld continues to do is, is, is obscene. And I really believe in the movement to create um, sea sanctuaries uh, for all the captive and, and potentially, you know, um, Keiko was an example, like you know, Keiko didn't live like completely along in the wild. That was the star of Free Willy, but, sh but they were released into the wild and was able to, you know, travel across the the Atlantic Ocean, um, and and so I think that's also possible. I don't think that um, 
I don't think that C sanctuaries is the only option. I think like really thinking about like, how do we release these animals into, into the wild and let them live their own lives? Um, there's still a lot to be learned in that realm, but regarding elephants, we have, you know, the Fresno zoo has an elephant that was just taken out of the wild. The, um, I believe it's the Dallas Zoo. One of the zoos in te- Texas just has a has an elephant that was just snagged out of the wild of Africa. There was this amazing expose in the New York Times last year about um, American zoos literally taking elephants out of the wild, and that should that should be illegal. That shouldn't be happening. We shouldn't be taking wild animals out of the wild and putting them in them in captivity. Um, so those are the two really, I think, urgent things. Um, that need to be done is is um, the state of elephants and whales in captivity. Big, big issue. I didn't know the details of whatever you mentioned. I would always invite SeaWorld or any of these zoos on Jane Unchained anytime. We would love to dialogue with you because, you know, part of it is to see where is the culture going and anticipate. Look at what's happening with um, meat alternatives. Uh, even the giant meat producers are investing in meat alternatives and starting their own vegan brands. JBS, one of the biggest animal killers in the world, has a certified vegan line of meat alternatives. Tyson is investing in meat alternatives. So uh, these zoos, I think, need to uh, read the handwriting on the wall, but uh, obviously they're resistant. They don't want to change at least. Well, I can't speak for all of them. I certainly cannot. Um, and nor have I visited all of them. Uh, but uh, as an, as a, I guess you'd have to call it an industry, even though it may have some associations with municipalities and uh, uh, non-governmental organizations you know, when you charge people to go in to view animals, you're you're a business. Fo- always follow the money, right? Indeed. And, you know, the American Zoo Association here in the USA mandates so many things about the zoo industry. So I would call it the zoo industry because while these zoos are owned by cities or owned by nonprofits, there's this massive this massive um, organization that mandates so many things that requires them to continue breeding animals, threatens to withdraw their, um, their affiliation with zoos if they, ter- they transition to, to, um, to rescue sanctuaries. They have a vested interest in maintaining the zoo industry. Um, and until zoos start walking away from the American Zoo Association and changing their business models, like we are really in a world of hurt because that's really the, the big kind of overlord of, of, of um, modern U.S. zoos um, is the AZA. And um, they, you can go look on their website. It looks like they're a really amazing, you know, co- conservation organization. Um, but really, there, there's, there's, that is the documentary right there. <laughs> well, we invite them on, too. We'd love to dialogue with them. So what does the future hold for you as we've got a, just a few minutes left? Uh, it seems like you have the depth of knowledge and the skills as a, a TV producer and a writer to be um, the person who leads us into the 21st century 
uh, on this issue, because really, when you think about it, uh, they had zoos back in the Roman Empire. Okay, they had zoos in medieval times. This is uh, a time where kids can put on a virtual reality glasses and swim with dolphins. They don't need to kill a whole bunch of dolphins in a cove and then grab one pretty one and put put that dolphin in what amounts to a bathtub and so that kids can parade by and they can say, oh, uh, we're, we're doing something educational when artificial intelligence allows kids to literally swim with the dolphins. And uh, uh, the technology is extraordinary. It's pretty amazing. And they just, I don't know if you've been seeing on, on social media, the new robotic dolphin uh, that just came out um, no. that looks literally like a real dolphin and people can get in and experience the expressions and everything. So I believe that technology will be able to, um, you know, help um, the zoos emerge from their very ancient um, business model because it really hasn't improved over you know since since the you know early days in in Britain <laughs> uh, and um, and so that is like I think that technology um, is how we will be able to reimagine uh, our local zoos um, and also just education that it takes because so many it's the zoo zoos are so ingrained into our culture. You know, that, you know, I, I buy books for my two-year-old and there's so many books about how cool the zoo is. So until we start actually telling stories about the problems with zoos, and that's why partly I wrote this book, uh, and until, you know, the blackfish of the zoo industry comes out, like we will have a hard time actually transitioning. So it's both educating and also like providing the, the technical um, or technology that, that will actually solve the, this big, big problem that we face. Well, everybody is saying, please do that documentary. I think it could be the Bear Boy documentary that then also goes, starts with the personal story. You've got all those great news clips already. You've probably got a lot of video of Ursula and uh, Brutus. And then you can uh, transition to... Uh, a brief history of the zoos showing that uh, literally back in the Roman times, you know, emperors to show their power would uh, grab, ride on elephants and grab these, these animals and often throw them in uh, to fight to the death in the sort of animal version of the gladiator games. And there was horrific cruelty. And so from that emerges this sort of uh, really medieval concept of zoos that persist to this day and, and then show all the alternatives. I mean, I think that would be an incredible documentary. Um, and uh, I think it could be a big hit, you know? Uh, so I hope you, I hope you think seriously about doing it. Who could be, who could be better to do it than you? Uh, you've I'm in. done most of the work. You've done most of the work already. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, in terms of, uh, as an animal activist, and I too was inspired by Ingrid Newkirk, uh, and I often quote her. Uh, for example, she says, being sad doesn't help the animals. Get into action. What would you advise people watching who are activists to do? Uh, I feel that we're at a point with such a critical juncture. 
it, within a decade, we'll have virtually no wildlife vertebrates left on the planet. We need everybody to double down and to um, just wake people up. The, the biggest problem, of course, is the animal agriculture industry, which is using about half of ice-free land and the Amazon is on fire to create cattle grazing land. When the Amazon goes, um, our, I mean, we're going to hit a point of no return. The Great Barrier Reef is, is threatened. Uh, if you've seen the documentary Sea Spiracy, which is brilliant, it shows how the fishing industry, the commercial fishing industry is destroying the oceans. Um, mm. It gets back to uh, our abuse of animals and the biggest abuse of animals occurs in the food industry by far. Um, so how do we, what would you tell people who are watching who, who say they love animals and yet if they're part of this culture and not pushing against some of those behaviors, like they're eating animals, they're going to zoos, they're actually the problem. All of this is a consumer issue. If people stopped going to zoos, zoos would close and those animals would go to sanctuaries. If people stopped eating animals, the industry would change and we would stop destroying the planet uh, because we're basically wiping out all the habitat for animals primarily to create cattle grazing land and to grow crops to feed animals because there's so much more. We're 7.9 billion humans. We're raising 80 billion animals every year who are eating most of the food. So what would you tell people? I think it's we're at a critical point in our, you know, in our history as humans. And it is critical that we transition to a vegan diet for our own survival, you know, for the, you know, for, uh, for the rights of animals, for uh, maintaining the environment. There's so many reasons. And all the science points to that, like, a vegan, vegetarian diet is, is the most sustainable, best diet that humans can have. And so I would say that is the pers a personal step that um, folks should really be thinking about. Um, because that has a massive impact. And here we are, you know, in a global pandemic um, that has happened because of how close animals are to each other in a wet market. Like this is, we are now, we are, we are animals. We are directly impacted by animal agriculture. Um, and, and until like us humans really get tuned into that and there's, and there's enough of us who stop eating animals um, we, we're in a world of hurt. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that's interesting is there's more and more science that's coming out that is establishing very clearly that the number one thing individuals can do to reverse climate change is to stop eating animals. Some people don't like the word vegan. I don't care. You call it plant-based. You can call it eating fruits, vegetables, nuts, grains, and legumes. Uh, it's not about a word that may, people may go. It's really about the fact that we are barreling towards a point of no return. It was 129 degrees in Death Valley. The Arctic, which reflects, uh, has a cooling effect because the, uh, the snow reflects heat up. When it melts, all of that is going to start um, accelerating climate change and release a carbon bomb. We are barreling towards extinction. And right now it's animal extinction, but it's going to be human extinction if we don't make a change. 
And there's two things that's required, individual change and system change. Individual change um, is starting to occur as you see all these plant-based products and people like Bill Gates, who is no radical vegan activist, he's one of the most successful business people in the history of humankind saying we have to switch to, he called it synthetic meat. He's basically saying we have to go plant-based. He's done the math. Um, so you see that part, but of course the government is very resistant because the government has been co-opted by industry. Uh, Tom Vilsack, the head of the USDA is a, is a former dairy trade uh, leader. And so, you know, I, it's funny because I've been reading a little bit about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and part of it was the corruption that, that infiltrated all aspects of life. And um, so the, gov the governments were working for the elites, not for the people. It's, it's, there's a lot of similarities, and it's sort of like what happens. But we, we really all have to wake up. And, you know, do you have to wait till your house is literally on fire? Do you have to wait till you literally have no water? People are talking about the drought here in California, and they're not talking about the fact that a, a plant-based diet saves 600 gallons of water a day per person, which is not me saying that. That's National Geographic. And when they talk about, well, who's using all the water, they fail to mention that California is the largest dairy state in the nation, and the cows are using all the water a huge percentage of the water. And they are contaminating a huge percent of the water with their feces and urine. It's not brain surgery. You do not have to know higher math to figure this out. You have one minute. Tell, wrap us up. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for everything you're doing for animals, for bringing all of these issues to the world. I, if I could give you a high five, I would right now. So thank you for what you're doing. I have so much gratitude. Thank you for bringing this story, Bear Boy, to, to um, your audience. I, um, I really want to encourage, first off, go vegetarian. Whoever's listening and hasn't transitioned to a vegan diet, um, it's not hard especially in this day and age. Um, and because I'm in um, promoting my book mode, I want to encourage everyone to go and buy Bear Boy, my new book, The True Story of a Boy, Two Bears, and the Fight to be Free. It's available uh, at bearboy.org, and literally where any books are sold, you can get it. And it comes out officially tomorrow. And I would like to see it in every library and every school. So Please. let's make that happen too. Justin, this was such a fun conversation. I love what you do. You thank are my you. hero. Uh, thank you. Power on. I'm dying to finish off Bear Boy. It's quite a read. Forward by Jane Goodall. And um, I can't wait to see your documentary. I hope we've inspired you. Everybody liked that idea. And please, if you're watching this, uh, Facebook share out. And um, yeah. Let's let's save the world. Let's 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 get it together before it's too late. Thanks so much. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.